Well, I want to start this class by thanking you all uh, for coming back, except for Don, because it's his first time, so he doesn't know what he's getting into. Um, I'll just remind you that we have uh, lunch with the teacher today, so if you want to stick around and have lunch with us here, um, you can do that and we can discuss more about uh, the class and just kind of have an informal time. Uh, the class, Don, just so you know, it is recorded and so I try and um, get our lecture time in about an hour. I haven't started the lecture time yet, this is just kind of informal, but once I start it'll kind of be more concise. So we'll have a Q&A at the end and also there'll be the discussion time at lunch. Um, really appreciated the people that came out to lunch last week and um, we had a good back and forth. I think you guys got some clarification on some things. I realized what things need to be clarified. Um, and I got a lot of feedback too, which, which really helps me because it's the first time teaching this class. I'm still pretty young as a teacher, so um, how I structure things, you know, is changing as we go along. I hope that's not too frustrating, but mostly it's getting less difficult and more streamlined, so that's probably not too frustrating. Um, one of the main questions that came out was, why? What are we doing here? Um, why, this is really hard, you know, and it's a lot of information. And, and what's, what's the point? Uh, do you really think I'm going to sit down with somebody and go through the whole history of the Crusades and try and, and argue uh, that, that point with them? And, uh, I mean, no, probably not. A lot of this stuff, honestly, um, you're not going to use in a, in a personal discussion over coffee or something like that. Um, in a similar way to a lot of the math that you learn in high school, um, when was the last time you guys used advanced trigonometry? <laughs> in your daily lives. <laughs> How about algebra? You use algebra every once in a while, don't you? I use algebra sometimes. Um, but the fact that, I mean, and in high school we, we ask our teachers so often, what, when am I going to use this? When am I going to use this? But that's not a reason not to teach something. Uh, for two reasons. For one thing, you never know when you're going to use it. And you never know, and another thing, you never know who's going to take it and really pursue it. As, as a professional, so you give people a general global education. And thirdly, because it's changing our minds, it's enabling us to think. And even though we forget most of the math that we learned, the impact of it is still there. And our, our brains are these you know, little neurons, these little circuits. And through sitting in class from the age of eight or five up to um, you know, 18 or whenever you graduate and then post-secondary, all those little neurons get rewired and, and and refocused to think more complex thoughts. Um, so you have a better brain because you went to school than if you didn't go to school. And my conviction is that teaching, learning difficult stuff like this, that's just like, don't have any background in philosophy, boom, class on philosophy. Don't have any background in, um, in history, boom, class on history. Um, it is rewiring your neurons. It is rewiring your brain. It is, and I, um, when you leave class and you're kind of in this mushy state of like, I, the, uh, kind of, like everything feels like mush in your brain, uh, and I've been a student for like my entire life, and I'm very familiar with this feeling of leaving a class and being like, I have no idea what he said, and I don't even know like how to walk to my car anymore. Um, but my conviction is that is your brain rewiring itself. That is you know, the teacher tearing down your neurons and then slowly you rebuild them up and you become able to think more complex thoughts. So don't be discouraged, you're getting smarter. 
And um, a lot of this information, um, it might be a few months or even years before all of a sudden it clicks and you realize, ah, that, that was important and that didn't make sense. All that being said, it is going to get easier from here on out because I've been laying a foundation and I did a class on what is apologetics, boom, tons of information. What is worldview, boom, tons of information. What is church history, boom, tons of information. Now we're going to talk about the moral argument, which is a concise, clear argument. It is, you know, it is um, a big argument, but it is clear and concise and is one topic for today. And next week we're going to talk about the problem of pain and suffering. There's one topic. And so it's going to be simpler, it's going to be more straightforward. We're still going to challenge ourselves, we're still going to think hard. It's going to be one thing at a time, and we're going to be following our textbook for the next couple lectures, which will, be, which will make it easier. So it will, and also we're going to start to see how the foundation makes sense and how it feeds into each other, because especially today, the moral argument, everything I said about um, having a fixed point of reference in worldview is going to make a lot of sense today. <clears throat> so with that being said, I'd like to pray for us, and then we'll start our... Our lecture time. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that you are good, that you exist, that you speak, and that um, you haven't left us on our own devices. Uh, you have come to us as our God and, and as our guide. And you have left, um, you have left, left us with uh, instructions and just with a, a moral compass so that we don't hurt each other as much as we would otherwise. And I thank you, Lord, for leaving that impression in us. And I thank you for how we can follow that uh, breadcrumb back up to you and um, and see your nature, uh, which is hidden within each one of us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So you guys should have a handout that looks like this. This will be your notes to follow today. Oh, sorry. So on top of that, you have um, an addition to your glossary. So it says glossary on the top. You should have a glossary at the back of your binder. Uh, and these are going to be words that um, we're looking at today. Uh, there's a lot of new words today, so I just made you an addition to the glossary uh, so that we can be clear on that. So I would like to invite you to my home where any day, given day of the week, because I've got four kids, uh, you would li be likely to hear statements such as, um, how would you like it if somebody did that to you? Hey, that's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He wasn't doing anything to you. Hey, it's my turn. Give me some of your candy. I gave you some of my candy. Come on, Daddy. You promised. Now, all these statements, um, you can hear kids saying them, but you can also hear grown-ups saying them too, can't you? Maybe in a more sophisticated, more complex way. Um, but this is... We hear this sort of thing all the time, whether we're in a professional setting, maybe in a court, maybe somebody is de delivering um, a, a thesis defense, or if you're just on the bus, somebody cuts in line, whether you're in a family reunion, you know, at a workplace, wherever you are, people back and forth, they quarrel, they, they banter like this. Let's take a look at these statements, and I've reproduced them here for you in your notes. Um, Behind all of these statements, what, what is there? I. <laughs> there's, there's I, there's selfishness. But what, what, I want you to what I want you to notice here, I might be digging too hard here, so I'll just tell you the answer. Is this, uh, yeah. When there's one or two parties involved, you'll notice neither of them is saying, 
I don't prefer that you do that. I don't prefer this. I don't prefer that. What they're saying is, what you did was wrong. Welcome to the class. Hi. Do you have a set of notes? Is there an extra one over here? Yeah, there's extra notes, so you'll be welcome to follow along. What they're saying is, if if you analyze this and if you think about it, just for a second, you'll realize they're appealing to a higher standard. Even kids, you know, from a young age, they're saying that's not fair. Well, they're, they're saying there's something called fairness, and we both know what fairness is, and what you did doesn't, doesn't match. It's not fair. Um, when they say, Daddy, you promised, what they're saying is you said something, you should do what you said, because that is the right thing to do. And if I don't do what I said, then I'm, you know, I've lied and, and there'll be consequences. Um, or or they'll, they'll make me pay. Um, <laughs> leave him alone. He wasn't doing anything to you. Okay, he wasn't doing anything to you, so you shouldn't do anything to him. There's this sense of do unto others as you would have them do to you. That is just there. And everybody believes that it's there. Everybody knows it's there. And... All of our interactions are based on the existence of this law. Just imagine for a second if we took this law out. Mm. Now, somebody cuts in front of line at, at Tim Hortons, right? You're, it's morning. You really need your double-double. <laughs> and somebody cuts in line. And they, they've got an arrogant look on their face. And, and you really want to, you know, let them know that what they did, you know, they shouldn't have done it. So what would you say if you can't appeal to this law? Right? I would prefer that you could say, excuse me, and maybe kind of imply, look, I'm going to make you pay. Like, <laughs> I'm going to make you pay. Fear me. Right. And that might be more effective for some people than others. <laughs> but unless we have some sort of a moral law up here, you can't say, hey, well, you can't do that. I was in line first. Don't cut it in front of me. So all of our, our quarrels and our interactions... They, they predicate this law. And very rarely will somebody say, I don't care about your law. I don't care about what's fair. Well, sometimes we tell kids because it is important for them to understand life is not fair. But even in saying life is not fair, we still validate that this wasn't fair. You know, life isn't fair, but there is such a thing as fairness. Even, even the statement life isn't fair, there is fairness here, but life is not fair, right? Um, and even in the most base, most, I don't know, um, the, the most cruel situations, people are still saying, well, the reason I did this was because the situation wasn't fair. The reason I did this was because I, I was dealt a bad hand. Very, very rarely will somebody say that this moral law doesn't exist. And because this moral law exists, uh, we can formulate an argument for God. And the argument is on the bottom of page one, and it goes like this. Without God, the moral law does not exist. Because, and we'll explain why this is throughout the course, but throughout the class. But basically, if God doesn't exist, there's no hook large enough to hang this law on. There's, there's no other way to really support it. So if God does not exist, the moral law does not exist. However, the moral law exists. We all know the moral law exists. It, we, we make use of it in all of our daily lives. Without the moral law, nothing would make sense, ethically speaking. So we know the moral law exists, therefore God exists. 
So it's a, it's a simple, straightforward argument, uh, the way I've laid it out here, and it provides the foundation for part one of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Who here has read Mere Christianity? So part one is, en français, c'est le fondement du christianisme. C'est, c'est un livre très bon que te, je te suggère. Je pourrais l'apporter, j'en ai trois à la maison. <laughs> Seriously, I give this book out like all the time. You want one? Okay, I'll give you one next week if you come back. Um, <laughs> come to my class, I give books away. So the reason I'm passionate about this book is because this is the only time that I handed somebody a book and they literally got saved. Like, wow. I left for Christmas, I gave somebody this book, left for Christmas break, came back and they were like, I want to get saved. Um, now, this was somebody that's very, like, intellectually uh, charged, but it's a very powerful book. It's, it's like almost 50 years old. It's still, you go to Amazon chapters, it's still there. It's still... 63. And he would have written this before, you know, his last year, his deathbed. <laughs> so it's an, extremely, it's an extremely important book. And this argument um, is one of the most powerful arguments for God. Uh, it's, it's really simple. You guys can all learn it. But especially in discussion with atheists, um, we all know that the moral law exists. And so it's, it becomes a powerful lex, um, argument for asking, well, how did it get here? Why do we know that right is right and wrong is wrong? So there will be some objections right off the top. Um, some people will say, don't the diversity of, of religions and cultures in the world disprove the existence of this moral law? But uh, C.S. Lewis makes the claim on page 6 of this book. Um, actually, if you study the various religions of the world... They're not all that different when it comes to the fundamentals of what is right and what is wrong. All the religions, all the cultures of the world are going to talk about loving your friend, loving your neighbor, loving your kids, loving your wife, loving your husband. They're all going to talk about deception and lying are wrong. They're all going to talk, you know, about sexual ethics. And, and um, you know, C.S. Lewis said, religions will disagree over whether you should have one wife or three wives. But all religions are going to agree a man can't just have any woman he likes. Um, and I think that's probably true even if we go to really extreme examples, you know, little tribe in Papua New Guinea where things are very different than here. Still, there's going to be some sort of an ethic where, where you take care of your own and, and you, um, you're faithful sexually um, in one form or another. And um, if, yeah... So, so to, despite their, their differences, the, most religions are similar when it comes to the basics of what morality is, which is often what is thrown at us. Aren't all religions the same anyways? Which, you know, there are differences between religions, but there is an underlying similarity in ethics because we have the, the law of God written on our hearts. Um, the second objection, isn't this just a feature of shared social evolution? Uh, we, throughout having evolved as a society, haven't we just kind of decided that certain things are right and certain things are wrong? So this isn't actually true in some sort of a bigger, ultimate sense. It's just what we as a society have chosen. So this is not objective. This is just subjective. And we just claim that it's objective. Well, there's a few things we can say about this. 
Um, if it is something. First of all, when we're talking about evolution, we say, well, you know, we've learned things over the years. Our society has evolved. We used to believe in, you know, burning witches, and now we don't. And, and we're so much more evolved as a society. You'll notice we're talking about improvement, aren't we? Improved according to what? Because when we make this claim that our society is better than the, than the society in the Dark Ages, we're making the claim that our society is better. Mm-hmm. But we're not just saying, I prefer our society. That's not the claim we're making. We're saying our society is better. So if we're saying that a society is better or worse, more evolved or less evolved, then we're still appealing to the law of nature, the, the law of morality. And so we haven't really gotten away from it if we're talking about evolution, if we're talking about better or worse. Another thing people might say, and we'll come back to this later on in the course as well, we have this beautiful picture on page three um, with a lion. I like my lion. I am uh, rediscovering my artistic talents. So isn't, um, isn't our sense of morality just a herd instinct? So, uh, you know, as atheists would believe in the survival of the fittest, you do what benefits yourself to propagate your genes to you know, increase, so you win, you know, so, so that um, your species wins on the planet. This is the survival of the fittest. But they will say, so, so the question is, how does survival of the fittest end up, and the law of the jungle end up being love your neighbor? Because these two seem to be opposite each other. And that, that is a serious problem for atheists, but they do overcome it by saying, ultimately, the best thing that you can do for yourself is not to be selfish, it's to love your family, to love your group. Um, so a bunch of zebras that are all individual, individualistic, are going to succeed less than a bunch of zebras that band together in a herd. So this is what's called the herd instinct or the herd morality. So they'll say, well, actually this moral law is just our herd morality, is just our sense that if we all stick together, we're going to beat the lions. If we all stick together, we're going to be able to... Um, do better as a society. And this is, you know, it's a fair objection, and and it's a good objection, uh, I think. But what it doesn't, um, there's at least two issues that it doesn't doesn't fully address. The first is, well, there's there's a couple here. There's about four problems. The first is the genetic fallacy, which is, um, the genetic fallacy, which is important for us to know for other discussions in this class, uh, Genesis refers to um, how, uh, how something begins. So the genetic fallacy is the belief or the mistaken idea that how you come to know something affects whether or not that thing is true. How you come to know something affects whether or not that thing is true. So, And you can see why... This sometimes can happen. You, you learn something from a faulty source and you realize, no, that wasn't true. You learn something from a good source and you realize, oh, that is true. But how I came to know about Australia, whether that was you know, from a children's book or from a cartoon or from a scientific textbook or from my parents, how I came to know about something about Australia doesn't affect whether or not Australia actually exists. Okay? 
So whether or not we came to know about morality through evolution or from God revealing it to us really doesn't matter. What matters is whether it actually exists. And we have this, we know that it exists. We have this strong sense that it exists. And so in a sense, how we came to know it doesn't matter. That's the genetic fallacy, is the belief that how you came to know something um, affects whether or not that's true. Secondly, this presumes atheism. It's called begging the question, just assuming that one premise of your argument is true and then building on that. Sure, if atheism is true, then how we got our ethics is through evolution. But if Christianity is true, then how we got our ethics is from God. So it's just presuming that atheism is true and then proving that atheism is true, which is circular reasoning and begging the question. Um, but more fundamentally, we have um, this, this little picture of the lion here. Um, we have a mind-brain dilemma, which is something that um, is, is a big discussion among cognitive scientists. Cognitive scientists study the brain. And the issue that they're running into is that if there is no spiritual dimension, then there is no free will. Because if you look at animals, and this might be counterintuitive, but if you look at animals, basically they have no free will. If you have a pet, you say, well, no, because they, they choose and, and, and we have this interaction and you, you treat them like a human and they, and they kind of act like humans. But the way that we, people that study animals would say that they act is they have an instinct and the instinct leads to action. And their instincts come from herd instinct, from survival of the fittest, whatever, wherever they come from. Instinct, action, that's how it works. And if there's two instincts, whichever one is stronger is the one that, that they decide to do. And usually we, we give our pets kind of a, a humanistic um, appearance because we, we, we nurture their instinct to, to care and to love and, and we breed them to care and to love and to be docile instead of you know, the instinct to kill, which is less helpful and conducive in a children-filled you know, home. Um, so if, if, there is, if there is nothing but the brain, which you know, is all controlled by, by circuitry and by um, chemistry that comes to us from ev evolution, if all we got is the brain, there's no free will. We're all just doing what our instincts tell us to do. And there's no possibility of independent thought either. The reason I think this is because, boom, 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 these different instincts have bumped into each other to create these thoughts. So on atheism, this is a little bit of a side point, I guess, but on atheism, we need to have strong questions about whether our thoughts, the things we're thinking right now, are actually true, or whether it's just a product of, of evolution. But that's not actually the world that we find ourselves in. We don't find ourselves, at least we don't feel like we are, in the situation of just, just you know, imprisoned by our instincts and doing what, what our instincts tell us to do. Rather, we, we operate on a world on a level of we have various instincts that are continually opposed to one another. And who knows where these come from? That's, that's a subject for another debate. Maybe they come from evolution. Maybe they come from social conditioning. Maybe they come from God putting them into our hearts, whatever. But we have an instinct to love. We have an instinct to hate. We have an instinct to provide for ourselves. We have an instinct to care for others. We have all these instincts that are fighting within us all the time. And then we have free will. And we have us, you know, kind of our spirit above our minds. So our mind is here with all these different instincts in it, and we're up here and we're thinking, 
well, what should I actually do? You know, so there's a, a man drowning in a river and he's yelling, help, help, help. And there's this herd instinct that says I should help a member of my herd that's suffering, right? But there's also this, this instinct that says I need to look out for number one. I don't, I don't want my genes to die. But above this, there's the decision. There's somebody deciding whether, what they should do. And above that, what's the right thing to do? What should I do? What, what is the ethical thing to do? And what we find is that this moral law pushes us to choose one of our instincts or the other. And so if this moral law is something that's pushing us, how could it be one of these instincts? You see the argument? These instincts are what's causing the trouble. The moral law is what... Well, maybe the, maybe the moral law is causing the trouble. I'm not, it depends on your perspective. But the moral law is what's pushing us often to choose the weaker instinct. It's not a matter of just whichever instinct is stronger. Often, we're most conscious of the moral law when it pushes us to, to um, follow the herd instinct when we want to follow the self-preservation instinct. And this, I think, is really helpful. This is, we're still in C.S. Lewis here. Um, he says, none of the instincts that we have in us are inherently wrong. And when I read that, I thought, that is really interesting. And he said, even the instinct to, I mean, as a church, we tend to downplay the instinct for, for sexual gratification. But is sexual gratification always wrong? No. Sex was created by God. And there's a time and a place in a marriage where one person wants it, the other person doesn't. And the person that doesn't, for the sake of the marriage and loving their, their partner, inflames or, you know, encourages that, that feeling that they don't necessarily have, you know, um, because that's the right thing to do. They go for the weaker instinct. Likewise, not all of our instincts are always right, even the love of a child. There's a time and a place when a mother's love for a child can harm that child if it's not, you know, kept in its proper place. Because it's not the right thing to do to take one instinct, even mother love, and, and go zooming off with it. At some point, you know, you need to restrain your love for your child. And C.S. Lewis gives the illustration, it's like all of our instincts are the keys on a piano. There's no key on the piano that's the right key. They're all appropriate at the right time in the right place. And the moral law is what tells us how to play our instincts in the right way, like a, like a sheet of music. And so the sheet of music can't be the, the, the keys on the piano. And so I think that's a really helpful distinction. And it, I think it just really defeats this herd instinct objection to the moral law. We, we know that there's a moral law and it's above uh, our, our bare bones instincts. But all this might be superfluous, uh, extra. Unnecessary. In fact, in, um, in, in our textbook, um, On Guard, William Lane Craig spends about a page and a half on whether or not the moral law actually exists. And it comes right at the end of the chapter, and he's like, oh yeah, there will be some people that deny that the law exists. But they're not real serious people, <laughs> he kind of says. Because when you really push people... And, you know, if, if people have taken, you know, in high school and first year of college, that, you know, people take a philosophy class or an English class and they're like, there's no morals, there's no truth. 
you know, if you really start pushing them, well, is it okay then if I just take your laptop? No, you can't do that. <coughs> Why not? Well, that would be illegal. I don't think I'll get caught. Well, I'll beat you up. No, I'm stronger than you. Well, it's just wrong. You can't steal my laptop. Why not? Oh, I guess moral laws and duties do exist, don't they? Um, and, and very often people that... This might just be my personal you know, anecdotal experience, but it seems as though young, uh, typically men in, in college, high school, they, they get to this stage and they're like, they're so excited about relativism because it means that they're free to do whatever they want, usually sexually and also stuff acquisition. You know, I can do whatever I want. But when it starts to come back, say, well, hold on a second, that means that anybody can do whatever they want to me, all of a sudden, no, no, hold on a second. The moral law does exist after all. I don't want people uh, walking all over me. And more, you know, hitting us more at the heart, can we really say that the Holocaust, does anybody really say that the Holocaust is just somebody's preference? You know, imprisoning, slaughtering women, children, that, I just don't prefer that. No, that's wrong. Does anybody really say that, you know, imprisoning somebody and, and systematically raping them over a series of, of a number of years is, that's just not my preference. No, that's wrong. Um, abusing and, and, and uh, hurting a child just for the fun of it, that's just wrong. You know, abusing children, that's just wrong. Um, when it comes right down to it, we know, we know that there is right and there is wrong. Um, and, and we could add to that, what about the abuses of the church? Were the Crusades really wrong, or is that just our personal preference? Were the Inquisitions really wrong, or is that just our personal preference? And we actually realize that most people in our society are very devoted to the idea of a law. Even pushing it one, one further, what about uh, ideals like um, tolerance, equality, love, justice? Are these just our, our society's preference of how we should be? No, this is how we actually should be. This is good conduct. This is how we shouldn't be intolerant. We should be tolerant of others. So really our society is very devoted to this. And most people, in, when you actually push them to think about it, they, they believe in the moral law. And the fact, one final objection I could have put here is that, or maybe I did somewhere, I'm kind of lost in my notes, but um, somebody could object, well, there are some people that don't have a sense of, of right and wrong. We call them sociopaths. But the fact that there are some people that don't know right and wrong doesn't mean that this law doesn't exist. It means that there's some people that are handicapped and they're sick and, and they need help. And, and um, just as the fact that there's some people that are color, colorblind doesn't mean that color doesn't exist. They, they have a physical handicap that they need help for. And the fact that there are some people that don't don't have any sense of this law doesn't mean that this law doesn't exist. It means that they are a danger to themselves and others because they are handicapped in some way for some reason. So, this argument, let's put it on the board. So now we've covered the first five chapters in C.S. Lewis. How are you guys doing? Yeah, C.S. Lewis is fun. I really like C.S. Lewis. Uh, it was amazing how... I haven't seriously read him in like six years, but when I was preparing this, I didn't need to. It was just all there. It just makes so much sense. It just sticks with me. Um, so, do I even have room for this? 
if I don't think I do. So one, if God does not exist, then and um, C.S. Lewis talked about the moral law, and then he explained what the moral law is. Now uh, William Lane Craig is you know double doctorate philosophy guy, so he wants to be more precise than just saying the moral law. He says if objective moral values and duties do not exist. Yeah, this is in your notes. I don't know why I'm taking all this time to write it out. Uh, Bottom of page... Page four. Top of page four. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Point two, God does exist. I mean, sorry. Objective, moral, values, and duties. Omvad for short. <laughs> do exist. Three, therefore, triangle of three dots means therefore, God exists. So, we've taken time so far to prove that premise number two is true. Okay? Premise number two is premise number two is true. Uh, objective moral values and duties exist. The moral law exists, and most people recognize this. So let's define what each of these words mean individually. Objective. What does objective mean? Anybody? Don't look at your definition. Yes, in, independent of people's opinions or person independent. So gravity exists whether anybody knows it, believes it, likes it, prefers it. It just exists. Uh, the planet Earth um, just exists. Whether or not there's people here to enjoy it or not. There's stars that haven't been discovered. They exist. Whether or not we've discovered them or not, they just exist. What does subjective mean? It's the opposite. It only exists if somebody believes it such as um, um, the preference that chocolate is better than vanilla. It only exists if somebody believes it. Uh, the, the preference of country music over rap music is not an objective thought, <laughs> as much as uh, some people might claim that it is. It is a subjective feeling. Some people prefer this kind of music, some people prefer that kind of music. It's not objectively true that one style of music is better than another. Uh, moral. We might have a debate on our hands if we go too far with that one. Um, no, but th- that actually illustrates that it is, it's a wrong move to take a subjective value and say this is objective, right? So as much as we might have a strong preference for one style of music, it is not objectively true that unless we're going to say, well, maybe one is, is closer to you know, some standard, such as it's more in tune or does better things for your body, I don't know what... But it's just a subjective choice. <coughs> wow, my throat is... I hope I make it through this class. Moral. Um, doesn't need a lot of explanation. What does moral refer to? Right versus wrong. It's the ethical dimension of our lives, deciding on what is good, what is bad. 
Values and duties. So this is William Lane Craig's addition to this, and this is where he's kind of making a distinction, division. Um, and the first couple times I read it, it just kind of zoomed past me, and then I was like, oh, no, yeah, this makes sense, this is important. So what is a value? Who took uh, good notes in, in their reading? Yes. Yes. So a value is is whether something is good. It is good to be a doctor. It is good to be um, a policeman. It is good to uh, care for your children. It is good to, uh, and it is bad to you know to torture people. It is bad to um, live off welfare when you could work for yourselves, right? Um, but then there's duties. So there's these things that are good and bad out there. But then there are duties that impress themselves on us. And the two are different because just because it's good to be a doctor doesn't mean that you have to be a doctor. Just because it's good to be a policeman doesn't mean you have to be a policeman. Just because it's good to um, you know, feed orphans in Africa doesn't mean you have to you know, give to every single uh, missions organization that's, that's caring for them, although you should certainly contribute. So duties are the things that we ought to do. And ought is the perfect word just to put beside duties. Ought. And is is a good word to put beside values. Values, things are good or bad. And, and duties, uh, there are things that you ought to do. You should be kind to people. You should be nice. Um, and both of these things are implied by uh, the moral law. The, the statement that um, objective moral values and duties do exist. Now, the other thing that's helpful with this distinction is that um, no, we'll get there when we get there. Okay, so section two. Yep, those were our definitions. All right, we will get there later, but I do want to mention while we're here on page four, um, on atheism, it is kind of possible to explain how values exist. Some things are just good, some things are just bad. But it is extremely difficult to explain where duties come from. If there is no intelligent, bigger life form out there that sees all and that is thinking about what we should do, what we ought to do, where where does this sense of compulsion come from? The universe doesn't care what I do. The universe doesn't care if I become a a doctor or if I live on welfare. The universe doesn't care if if I care for my kids or if I don't. So duties are a lot harder to explain on atheism, where they come from. Okay. Um, Let's have a note on nihilism. We were discussing this before class, that nihilism might be the last dirty word (laughs) um, that exists in in atheism. Um, So it's really important. Okay, so what is nihilism? Does anybody know what nihilism is? Neil, go ahead. There is no moral law. And I think you can have different kinds of nihilism. You can have like, I'm not sure what else, but I think that it's best to say moral nihilism, to say it's nihilism in in reference to the moral law. 
Um, so there are people that believe this. There are, there are no rights and wrong. It's absolute relativism. Uh, the Holocaust is just my preference. Uh, rape is just our cultural preference. Uh, there is no final right and wrong. Um, but this is an unlivable way to, it's certainly an unlivable way to create society. But even personally, it's almost impossible to really consistently live this way. Uh, one of the most famous, well, maybe I shouldn't. Yeah, I'll just leave it that way. I was going to appeal to somebody going crazy because they were a nihilist, but maybe that's an invalid. <coughs> there might be other factors why they went crazy. Um, but it's very difficult to live consistently as a nihilist. So the argument that Whelan and Craig is making in this book is not that all atheists are nihilists. That is not the argument he's making. The argument he's making is nihilism is the only consistent um, is the only consistent worldview on atheism. Okay, so it's kind of like this. Here's theism. Do you guys know what theism is? Yeah. It's, it's just a catch-all for God. At this point, we're just saying God exists versus God does not exist in this argument. Okay, So Muslims could sit here and enjoy the class. Jews could enjoy the class. Even Buddhists, no, not Buddhists, but maybe Hindus might even you know, enjoy the class for theism uh, versus atheism. Okay, So we're, not, we're, we're taking things in little slices. Okay, So this class, we're only talking about does theism exist. And then in later classes, we're going to pick which theism and prove that our theism is the best theism. But Okay, so theism, God exists. Therefore, the moral law exists. Therefore, we have purpose, value, and dignity. Now, popular atheism says God does not exist. But we still have the moral law, and we still have purpose, value, and dignity as humans. Nihilism says God does not exist. Therefore, the moral law does not exist. Therefore, we have no purpose. We have no value. And we have no dignity as human beings, as creatures. So, the, the argument that William Lane Craig is making is pretend I'm a teacher here and I look at this so you know it's a philosophy class theist comes in God exists moral law exists purpose value dignity exists full marks good job okay A plus atheist comes in God does not exist but moral law still exists and, and purpose values and duties exist F this is not logically consistent this is not logically it's great that you live this way I'm really excited that you still believe that you have purpose in the world, but it's not logically consistent. So you fail your philosophy class. Nihilism. Logically consistent. This makes sense. Okay? Please talk to me after class. <laughs> and I'm going to refer you to the school psychologist <laughs> after I talk to you. Okay? So this is logically consistent, but it's not a good way to live your life, okay? This is how you end up, you know, in a, in a jail cell or in an institution. 
Yeah. Because humans can't live without purpose, value, and dignity in the world. And, and we end up doing very bad things if, if that's what we really believe. So it's very important that we understand um, atheists do live good lives. Tons of atheists live great lives. And we're not saying that the only way to live a good life is to be a Christian. And so we're distinguishing between belief in God and the existence of God. Okay? God is necessary to provide an anchor point for morality. To, to create a coherent worldview. But that doesn't mean that, God, that belief in God is necessary uh, to live a good life. So are there people that call themselves nihilists? Like, Very few. Okay. It's, I mean, like uh, Nietzsche is, what's his first name? Nietzsche, Nietzsche, Nietzsche. Anyways, Nietzsche is a philosopher that died, you know, around the turn of the century. Very philosopher, very famous, and I quoted him at least once in our notes. Um, and he was explicitly a nihilist. Um, you know, there, there's some people that will say I'm a nihilist, but it's very rare. Uh, honest, I mean, because it's kind of a dirty word, also because it's, it's rare to have that level of honesty. To say, this is a really horrible position, but this is where I find myself. Most people... You know, they're, they're working their way along and they realize, I can't live this way. And so they just make a leap. And this is something that uh, Francis Schaeffer argues. Is he says that we live in a two-tiered um, universe. So we have our beliefs. How does he put that? It's not quite like this. Um, in the lower story of the building is naturalism, is, is our belief in science and rationality and, and the natural world. The upper story of the building is our purpose, our value, our dignity as human beings. But there's no stairs between them. You just make a leap of faith. And you, just, and you say, nothing exists except the natural world. Uh, there is no God. There is no rhyme or reason. But, poof, come upstairs and say, I have purpose. The human, human society has purpose. It has dignity. It has, um, we, we have dignity as human beings. But there's, there's no way to make this, this jump. It doesn't make sense. And so that's the argument that we're making, is that this doesn't, it doesn't make sense to make this jump. It makes far more sense to say God exists, therefore moral law exists, therefore we have purpose. Or to move the other way, we know we have purpose, value, and dignity because the moral law exists. Because the moral law exists, we know that God must exist as well. So are we clear on what we're arguing? A few blank stares, a few nods. As long as I got half of you, I'm good. Um, so, the on atheism, and this really is a class against atheism. There'll be other classes against various forms of theism, but this class is the tension between creation or theism and atheism. So, on atheism, we have another another uh, uh, diagram here in your notes that I'll just put on the board here. It's really easy to. Um, to diagram naturalism and atheism. Now, naturalism and atheism, if we're going to be really precise, are not the same thing. Atheism is the belief that God does not exist. Buddhists also believe that God does not exist, depending on what type of Buddhist you're talking about. But most, usually in our society, in the West, when we're talking about atheism, we're also talking about naturalism. And naturalism is the belief that the natural world exists. Buddhists don't believe that the natural world exists. Okay? But most of us in the West, we believe that the natural world exists. We believe that 
science exists, that our five senses can, can perceive the world, and that it really exists. It's separate from us. It's real. And that nothing outside of the natural world exists. So what things don't exist? Because they, they're not in the natural world. God doesn't exist, right? That's why it's an atheistic perspective. The devil doesn't exist. Angels don't exist. You're just reading my notes. That's great. Uh, heaven, hell don't exist. Um, so by this definition, if we're just going to go on a strict definition, we should say that the moral law doesn't exist either. On the strict definition of atheistic naturalism, we should say the moral law doesn't exist because you can't measure it. Who here has touched the moral law? Who here has smelled the moral law? Who here has done a, a scientific test? And at the end of the day, in a, in a test tube, they have found the moral law. It doesn't, it's not that sort of a thing. It's the sort of thing that, that we come to through rationality and, and through thinking about things and through you know, our internal feeling of, of what is right and what is wrong. And you know, then atheists will say, well, uh, rationality is, is our property too. We get to have rationality. Um, and oftentimes they'll hide behind words like rationality and reason and I'm watching Star Trek and, and the, the Vulcans are kind of the poster boys of, of atheism, right? And they're like, that's not rational and this is rational. Okay, well, if we're talking about any rules that apply to the moral law need to apply to God too. So let me just finish this thought, but yeah. Um, if, if somebody is saying, well, I just know that the moral law exists because I can feel it and it's rational... I just know that God exists because I can feel his presence in me and it's rational. No, you can't do that because that's outside the box. Well, you can't do that either because that's outside the box. You see the issue? So if God is outside the box, then the moral law needs to be outside the box too. Yeah? I guess I was um, you know, questioning the you can't measure it um, in terms of we certainly scientifically have many measures of happiness, measures of um, uh, yeah, I guess measures of honesty, measures, you know, in terms of... How would you measure honesty? Well, by survey measures. So they're able to go out there and say, okay, this particular culture scores higher on honesty than this culture over here, and we use these criteria, and this is how we are measuring honesty. And, you know, so these are non... You know, certainly happiness. Canada is supposed to be one of the happier countries in the world. Um, we... We certainly have tried to measure mm -hmm. such things, but are you saying that those are invalid measurements of ethereal or non-concrete? Well, what I'm hearing you saying is here is honesty up here. You and I know what we're talking about when we say honesty because we have the moral law. This is something that we bring to science. And then we're, we're measuring how honest this society is versus how honest this society is versus how honest this society is. Mm -hmm. So science isn't discovering honesty. It's measuring how honest people are. And your example about happiness, okay, so, so happiness is something that we can measure, you know, like uh, the emotional serotonin and, and whatever else is going on in the brain. But whether or not happiness is good or not, and causing happiness in people, that's, uh, an that's a moral statement. Why is, it, why is it good to cause happiness and bad to cause unhappiness? There's no scientific reason to say that it must be good to cause happiness and bad to cause unhappiness. That is, that is part of the moral law that we carry with us. That's our conscience. 
That's the moral law that, that we bring. Science doesn't have ethics in it. The, the people that were, you know, in, the, in um, Auschwitz, uh, the, the um, what was his name? Him? No, not Himmler. Who was the, the scientist that was doing all these terrible experiments on people? You know? Mengele or somebody, yeah. And, you know, he's doing experiments on, you know, killing infants and, and measuring their responses and, you know, terrible things to pregnant women and just people in general. But he was doing real science. He was doing science from a, an invalid and from a weak moral standpoint. But science was still working just fine. In fact, he was probably doing better science in a way, like getting more accurate data than somebody that was, was doing it ethically speaking. So science itself isn't ethical or unethical. You need to bring ethics to science. In fact, that is where we are as a society. We desperately need ethics because our science, you know, has rocketed off to this place where, you know, we can take an unborn baby and turn, pretty soon turn it into a heart to save somebody. So where's the ethical help? You know, we, we need ethics to help science to figure out what to do. Can do isn't the same as should do can do isn't the same as should do and and science is what we can do but ethics is what we should do and and science def, uh, desperately needs ethics to um to keep it out of trouble and to keep it on track um <clears throat> so um right out of the gate it seems as though atheistic naturalism shouldn't have any grounds for moral atheism or moral for the moral law therefore it's inconsistent therefore you know, they should either become Christians or nihilists. And if, if nihilism is unlivable, they should realize you'll, you need to be a Christian. Um, but, of course, atheists don't stop there. They have reasons for why uh, the moral law exists. So, uh, I listened to two debates on this with, between atheists and Christians, one by Frank Turek, one by William Lane Craig. I forget who they were debating with. Um, but you can find them both online. And... Um, one way to express kind of in broad terms what atheists will, will claim is to say uh, atheistic moral Platonism. Now, who remembers what Platonism was in our first class? Our second class. Plato. You weren't here. Basically, the concept that there are objective things called ideals that yeah. exist outside. Yeah. We're living in the shadow world. Yeah. Concrete things, but that's, this is not... Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I didn't even use the shadow illustration. I don't know how to do Plato without the shadows. It's just like you need that one. Anyways, so um, Platonism is the idea that there's just certain ideals, certain things that are just true. And I, in my second class, said this is very similar to a monotheistic idea. And this is kind of how a monotheistic idea really saved Western, or became the foundation of Western thought. So these ideals, so the more, so the, in Platonism, these ideals just exist. They're just out there. And all of, you know, morality and all of the scientific world is based on these ideals. Therefore, there's order and rationality in ethics and in the natural world because these ideals just exist. What can we say about this? Oh, so, so then um, the atheist would say, well, the moral law. Similarly, now, I don't think that atheists would say that they're uh, 
atheist, what atheistic moral Platonists necessarily. Atheists tend to be, especially the, the new wave of new atheism with Dawkins and, and Harris and Hitchens, are very philosophically illiterate. And so um, I doubt that they would say that they are Platonists. Um, but this is a way to express what they're saying. They're saying the moral law just exists. It's just out there. It's just hanging, I mean, not literally in space, but it's similar to the multiplication table. That you discover it and you realize it's just true. It's just one of these things. It's just, it just exists. So what can we say to that? Um, the first thing we can say is that it just seems unintelligible. We can see how the, the multiplication table exists, but how does the ideal of justice or more complexly, the ideal of mother love or caring just exist in an abstraction uh, without any person to feel this idea or to think this idea of, of justice or, or love. Um, it seems as though these moral feelings that we have um, are aspects are of a thinking rational person. And it's really hard to see how they could just exist in abstraction. Um, to have this idea of justice, of love, that somehow just exists out there. So that's the first thing is I just don't get how it actually works. And it's the same issue with Platonism is, okay, that's fine that the world of the forms exists, but where? Describe it to me. Um, and along with that, um, access to... No, that's... No, I won't go there. Um... It doesn't help with moral duties. So if, if things are just good and things are just bad out there and they just hang in, in space or they're not in space, they're like the multiplication table, they just are, okay, that does fine for moral values. Some things are good, some things are bad. But what about duties? Why should I? It doesn't, the, these values don't push themselves on me. So you have... We have these things floating around, around like justice and cruelty. Why? On au Quebec, you see. I was waiting for an answer. No, why is not a, it's not a question, it's an answer. It's Um, so we have things out there like justice and cruelty, just their ideals. But for one thing, who's going who's gonna to push these on me and say, you should do this, you should do that? The multiplication table doesn't impress itself on me and say, I need to do something. It just is something. And who is there to decide between these two, between justice, well, that's a bad comparison, um, cruelty and mercy? Who is there to decide between ju cruelty and mercy? Mm -hmm. If they're just out there, they're just ideals, and there's no there's no arbiter. They're just um, th there's no way of saying which one is is better than the other. And it seems incredibly improbable. And we have another little diagram here of evolution and the moral law. So if the moral law is out here and it's been sitting out here for eternity past, right? And this is the moral law and it's, it's unchanging. 
And it's perfect. And just as Plato thought, it's the world of ideals and it's not touched by human frailty and such. Okay, so here's us, you know, we're evolving, we're apes, we're, you know, we're slime over here, then we're, we're fish, and then we're birds, and then we're reptiles. And, and all through this, you know, it's mostly the, the law of, of the jungle, but, but then with the herd instinct and the different things like that. And somehow we, we end up winding ourselves over to, to finding absolute objective morality that's never been changing through this tortuous path. Why? It just seems incredibly improbable that the ideals that we as humans on this small speck of dirt in this corner of the galaxy, in this huge universe, this idea that we have discovered through evolution, if we're believing in atheism, is the absolute ideals of what is right and wrong if it doesn't change. So it's, it just, it's very improbable. Okay, let's talk about, there's a few others here. Um... No, I'm going to summarize the next three arguments by saying a lot of atheists will just say the moral law just is, okay? It just is. Don't you know what right and wrong is? Don't you know? We all know this. It just is. <coughs> or they'll say, look, I'm an atheist. I live a godly life. Or they'll say, look, if you became an atheist tomorrow, would how you live actually change or would you still live the same way? Most of us would say, well, I would still live in an ethical way. Um, and, but all this does nothing. All this does, if I have my three categories over here again, all this is doing is saying, look, the moral law exists. Therefore, your life has dignity, value, and purpose. But it doesn't address the fact that there's no foundational support for it. And that's what the argument is about. And so atheists will often change the subject or just simply affirm this over and over. Look, moral law exists. Yes, we know it exists. That's why we're saying over here as theists that there must be a God so that the moral law exists so that we have uh, duties, values, and purpose. Okay, so the big objection that will be raised against this is uh, the Euthyphro dilemma. You can just throw that one out there when you're talking so people think you're smart. We are at page 9 in your chart, and you have another picture. So we'll keep you... So it, uh, I like my pictures. I hope you do too. Okay, so this dilemma actually predates Christianity. That's how old it is. And um, it is still current. I was listening to the debate between William Lane Craig and an atheist, and then Frank Turek and an atheist, and both of them, it was the main thing they talked about was the Euthyphro dilemma. So the dilemma is, if I can read it correctly, Frank Turek. He wrote a book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be Atheist, to be an Atheist. And he wrote a book, Stealing from God, How Atheism um, Borrows from God to Prove Him. T-U-R-E-K. Yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. He's a good, well, I don't know if he's a good guy, but he's a good um, apologist. So we have two options. The question that Socrates asked somebody is, is morality loved by God because it is good, or is it good because God decrees it? This isn't actually the question he asked. The question he actually asked is, is the pious loved by the gods because it is good, or is the pious good because it is loved by the gods? So that's the ancient, you know, 400 BC, uh, um, how, how it came out back then. But 
for our purposes, we can change this into a monotheistic system and talk about morality. Is morality loved by God because it is good, or is it good because God decrees it? So the issue here is, here's God. And on the one hand, we could say, is morality good because God loves morality, because God chooses morality? Morality is higher than God, therefore God, God's decrees are good because, morality, because he chooses to do the moral thing. Okay, that's one option. The other option is God, whatever God says is the definition of morality. So God says to love your neighbor, therefore loving your neighbor is good. God says to kill all the Canaanites, therefore killing all the Canaanites is good. God says to um, engage in human sacrifice, therefore human sacrifice is good. God says to, you know, we can go crazy with this. God says, if God said rape was good, then rape would be good. If God said that murder and torture was good, then murder and torture would be good. So this is this option. Whatever God says is morality. So both ways you put this seem to destroy God as we understand him. Because on this side, morality is higher than God. God does the right thing because he knows what morality is and he is subservient to morality just as much as the rest of us are. So God is no longer the ground and the center of morality. You see that? Yeah. On this side, God is, can do whatever he wants. God is capricious. God is um, arbitrary. And whatever crazy things he decrees all of a sudden become moral. And this just seems unlivable and very strange. I actually heard a Christian um, defending this, and I was just like, seriously? Like, this is really strange. Um, this is sometimes called the divine command theory, if you want to know that. Although I think that Christians would defend the divine command theory a little bit differently than atheists would portray them as. But So this is the other horn of the dilemma. So which one would you choose? You read the book. Ah. Cheater. <laughs> Can you ask the, uh, the informed uh, students? <laughs> so since you've read the book, since you've read the book, what would you choose? Um, morality is good because God is good. Yeah. So this is what's called a false dilemma. And we, we've gone through about three different... Um, what are they called? Logical fallacies today. This is our third one. I meant to make you a chart, but anyways, you guys know what a false dilemma is. Um, you either go out that door or that door. You can't go out that door, so you have to go out that door. Well, actually, there's a third door. Okay, so God does the good because morality is one of his aspects. Because he just is good. And this one is, I mean, it defeats the argument. It, Christians win. <laughs> um, but in listening to the debate between uh, William Lane Craig and, and I forget her name, um, she just kept coming back to it over and over and over. Yes, but why does he do it? Why does God choose the good thing? Is it because the morality is higher than him or what? And so philosophically it can get confusing, but it makes sense when you, re when you remember that God is a person. God is a personal God. We are made in his image. And you know people like this, where if you're stuck in a conundrum, what should I do? What should I do? Oh, I want to do this, but no. Nah, nah, nah. Think about 
who, whoever it is that's your moral compass, you know, your grandma or, or your dad or your best friend, you think, okay, what would so-and-so do? You know what? If so-and-so was in my shoes right now, they would do this because they're a more moral person than you. And ultimately, this is why I've got, we're on page um, 10 here, got the little thought bubble. What would Jesus do? And this is why I love the Christian worldview because it's so simple. It's so simple that Britney Spears can put it on a bracelet and wear it on her arm. That's how simple it is. Well, she used to, anyways. Um, terrible thought. But uh, it's so simple you can explain, express it to your children. What would Jesus do? And they get it. They get it. And it makes sense. And it, and it becomes this philosophical argument that in the high level of whatever, it still makes sense. We do, God does the good thing because he is good. And if you doubt that, look at Jesus. Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay. Yeah, there's other things we could talk about, but they're actually um, the the other main way that this conversation goes is changing the subject. Um, so you'll say uh, the moral law exists, therefore God exists, and they'll say, well, how do we know about the moral law? Well, how we come to know the moral law doesn't affect whether the moral law is true, right? And they'll say, well, Christians disagree. Okay, whether or not Christians agree doesn't affect the fact that as soon as you say Christians disagree, you're going to say which one is better. And when you're comparing, you admit that the moral law exists, okay? So the diversity of Christian opinions, how Christians come to know things, whether or not the Bible is the final authority for morality or what role it plays, that's all very important discussion. But it doesn't change the fact that the moral law exists. It exists like a brute fact. It is like gravity. It is like um, mathematics. It just exists. And there is no hook big enough to hold the moral law. If you take God out of the equation, then you're, you're left with either just leaving the moral law just hanging in space with no good explanation. Or else you're, you're pushed to say, well, if there's a moral law to the universe, who put it there? All right, that is the end of my lecture time. What do you guys have for questions here? About 15 minutes for questions. Again, it goes back to the whole concept where you're saying you still don't have a foundation or a hook to to hang it on. But uh, this is the thing that I have heard again and again and again. I've heard, read, okay, I've been trying to do something in this area, and it seems to be that they always come back, well, of course, it it just makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that seems to be the common uh, response, that they'll just say it's logical. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that, you know, unfortunately, some people just, sometimes you win the argument, but the other person doesn't realize it. It's sad. Always right. 
the, the center of the debate these days is more when we get to the cosmological argument, the Big Bang, evolution, the more hard sciences. People are very philosophically illiterate these days, which is why uh, one of the more popular historical arguments for Christianity, which is called the ontological argument, I completely skipped because I don't think it's useful today because people don't have the philosophical foundation to even understand what you're talking about. Um, and this one, I think people are just way too, way too quick to just say, well, it just exists. It's logical. And as you say, uh, and as I, I've said a few times, like, why? Why does it exist? Why does the universe care what you do? Well, that's the other side of it, because they'll all, all of you, of course it doesn't care. Yeah, and they'll jump back and forth, won't they? Yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating when, yeah, people will say, and people, you know, will, will say there are no, it's complete relativism, there's no right and wrong. But then they'll say, well, you can't do that. that you know, be fair, be, be just with me. Or, you know, be kind to this person in this situation. But there are no laws. There are, you know, and they're back and forth, and they're living this inconsistent worldview. Well, is there such a thing as ethics or not? When you really push people, they say, well, there is such a thing as ethics. Okay, we'll live that way. And most people do live that way, but they're not necessarily willing to, to admit that this is a foundation of their lives. Um, the other side of it, too, though, is that, that we live in such a religiously indoctrinated world, whether you're Christian, Muslim, or even atheistic, um, you know, ultimately you're going to come down to the idea that, well, uh, I'm a good person. So that's all that really matters. You know, and surely to goodness, those who are somewhat theistic will say, well, God will judge me on the basis of my goodness, not recognizing the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's amazing how when you take God out of the equation, we end up with religion. Uh, and that this comparing of one another to each other, you know, I'm better than so-and-so because I've done this, you know, and, and we find our, our moral bearings in, in comparing each other, which is religion, you know, which is, Jesus said, if you compare yourselves with, when you compare yourselves by one another, you are not wise. Um, and, and this is where we go, and it leads to arrogance or depression, because either we're arrogant, oh, I'm so much better than, than that tax collector that came in here. Thank you, Lord, that you made me more holy than him. Or depression, and we say, I've sinned, I've messed up. And uh, something that was interesting that came out of the debate with uh, <laughs> a person, I forget their name. I made a note, to, like, because I, I kind of quote her a few times, but I'll put it in the, maybe the comments under this discussion on Facebook. But um, she said... There's a few things that you lose when you get rid of God and you move over to atheism. One of them is redemption, which I thought was really interesting to say. Because in religion, this is an atheist that said this. Now, she went from there. Atheists can be... Don't, don't let me give you the impression that there are no reflective atheists. You know, Nietzsche was a very reflective atheist. Um, that actually gives us great insight into what postmodernity is. And, and this, she said there's no redemption. And she used that to say... Therefore, atheists need to live, live better lives. And she said, there's no hereafter. Therefore, atheists need to live better lives because this is the only life we've got. 
And the question you'd say is, why? Uh -huh. We should, we should, why? Where is, who is pushing this ought onto you? But she would say, we should, because there's no redemption. And if there's no redemption, then we have this religious, I'm better than you, I feel good about myself because I'm not as bad as so-and-so. When God comes into the equation, he forgives us for our sins, our righteousness is in Jesus Christ alone. All of a sudden we're free from comparison, aren't we? It doesn't matter if somebody comes in and says, I had such a great time with God this morning. I felt God, he spoke to me and I feel so close to God. Do you ever feel intimidated by that? You ever feel like angry at somebody because they're like, I feel so close to God because I was feeling good. And then this person is like, I'm so close to God today. And I'm like, oh man, I'm less spiritual. <laughs> but if we grasp, if we grasp how great and how broad and how long and how deep is the love of God for us. If we grasp that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. If we grasp that uh, we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Mm -hmm. And the Father replies to us, This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Before you've done anything. And we're free. Awesome. You did something great. You're close to God. We can rejoice when others rejoice. We can weep when others weep. Instead of the opposite. If we're freed up by the love of God. And we have purpose. So if there's no redemption and what they're believing, then how do they believe in hope? Yeah. And, and I, I don't want to give the impression either that, that most atheists are in, you know, that are all depressed and are like, what am I going to do with my life? I mean, clearly they put their hope in the evolution of the species. They, you know, believe that we're getting better and there's kind of this blind faith in progress. Um, and, and they... Um, they deeply love their friends and their children and they find purpose in that, which all works wonderfully as long as you don't think too deeply about it. Mm -hmm. Because all of this, science tells us, everything is going to end. That the sun will eventually expand to the point where it goes to supernova and eats up the earth. And all of the history of human civilization, your love for your kids, your care for, your, for society, your self-sacrifice, um, will mean nothing and even if we, you know, get on the, the Enterprise and go flying off to another galaxy, that'll only forestall it for a few billion years at the most. Eventually, the entire universe will be destroyed on atheism. And there will be nothing left. There won't even be stars left. There won't even be molecules left eventually. That's how bad it's going to get. And so, what is the purpose? What is the purpose if there's no God? What is the purpose of living justly and morally? There's a subjective purpose, sure. I mean, I feel better when I, when I love my kids. I, society is better in the short term. 
you know, we have better lives if, if we all love one another and, and care for one another. But, but ultimately... Back to that idea of what's the foundation of why. Yeah, why? Why does that make you why? feel better? Mm -hmm. Because there is a purpose, there is moral you know, yeah. objective values, and, and there is somebody that we look up to who has, has uh, well, what is these things? Yeah. We are becoming more like him as we participate in that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As we live, we are becoming more like Christ. I suppose the most huh. um, living, I mean, a truly atheistic point of view would be all over the concept of um, societal cleansing, right? I mean, technically, if we are bettering and the species needs to be better, yeah. it would make total sense. You should just execute everybody who's in jail, you know, yeah. rapists, murderers, anybody like that. It's just get them out of the uh, out of the DNA and let's move forward with this. Um, and that's the scary idea. And this is something we haven't talked about: is social Darwinism. Yeah, exactly. And most most atheists today would say, "I'm an atheist, but I'm not a social Dar Darwinist." Because social Darwinism is the doctrine of, of the Nazis. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that uh, we need to kill cripples, we need to kill autistic kids, we need to mm -hmm. kill you know, whatever the inferior species is so that we can evolve, so we can help evolution along. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it makes so much sense, I don't know how anybody can refute it. Mm -hmm. If somebody has insufficient genes and we let them live, we create medicines to make them live, we're making our genes weaker. Mm -hmm. And yet it's the ethical thing to do, isn't it? It's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. But if, if we're being consistent to Darwinism, and if we believe in evolution, we believe that's the only engine, then how can we progress as a species? And, and Darwin himself said, we sin grievously against our species when we allow the weak to, to propagate. Mm -hmm. um, we should, you know, as, as Hitler, you, you find the, the tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed person that's strong, it's got good genes, find him a wife, Encourage them to have seven kids. Somebody that is weak, that has you know MS or that has autism, either you kill them or you strongly or you sterilize them. You know, and uh, Planned Parenthood is grows out of this wonderful concept of trying not to let the lower class of society breed yeah. and pollute. You didn't, you haven't heard about this? Yeah, this is not the best thing to bring up in the last three minutes of class. Um, no, this was, this was big at the turn of the century. Before Nazism really you know, showed the horrors of it, this was high society, was understanding evolution, and we're trying to encourage our society to evolve. So there's passive and um, aggressive ways to encourage evolution. And one of the passive ways is you know, through abortion and through um, forced sterilization. No, that would be aggressive, but forced sterilization, but then abortion. And even to this day, if you look at where abortion clinics tend to be located, mm -hmm. they tend to be located in racial communities and in low-income communities, mm -hmm. which really kind of raised alarm bells. Mm -hmm. Has this idea of mentality really died? Or are we just finding a passive way to say, we would just prefer that there's less children born to this certain ethnic group mm -hmm. and to people with these sort, you know, a lower income? But that is, that is social Darwinism. And certainly, if you ask an atheist, they will you know, throw something at you if you say that they're a social Darwinist. Um, but people that really... How do you become social Darwinist? In a, in a passive way. 
Yeah. Because we're, you know, we pro cho uh, pro pro choice. That's what their what their term is, of course. Yeah. To state that, that this is this is a morally evolved way. Yeah. That we are being pro, not anti. Mm -hmm. And so pro life is seen as being narrowly bigoted, uh, religiously oriented, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, rather than being pro humanity, which is yeah. what it is. And uh, pro choice is pro devil, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah. But, but even in, you know, for our first child, you know, they did some tests and they said, well, he, no, sorry, that wasn't us. That was um, somebody else related to me. And they said, your child is that he might have autism, you know. Turns out they didn't. But, you know, since then, we, we always turn down those tests. We don't need to know what our child may or may not have. Because the next question is, are you sure you want to have this child? Because once they're born, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, it, it's social Darwinism, you know. Don't let don't let the weak genes propagate. It'll weaken our society. I've got a question. Yeah. Completely unrelated to this. Good. Back to this. We need to it's lighten things up a bit. Reconnecting the wires and stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to do. So basically, all of these are like rebuttals to the the argument on like whether the herd is instinct, the social yeah. evolution, but it boils down to like the foundation. There's a God because there's nothing that can hold moral law without it. Yeah. That is my argument. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I've, I've got others, other places, but... Which I realize is a little bit of a time. weak argument because it's kind of an argument from silence. There is no good argument, therefore... But that's paired with God is a good hook. God is a good foundation for ethics and morality. And there is no other good hook. For, there is no other good foundation that I've heard of or that I've seen. So, yeah. All right, let me pray for us and then we'll be done. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are good and that your loving kindness um, is new every morning. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that even, um, even those that reject you, even the breath of your enemies is in your hand. And uh, you cause your, your sun to shine and your rain to fall on the good and on the evil. And I thank you, Jesus, that you give atheists good lives by giving them a moral compass and by um, showing them what is the good and showing them what is the path that they can walk in in the way of wisdom as is described in Proverbs so that they can, they can live, lead happy lives and love their kids and, and love uh, their neighbors. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that... Uh, we would be agents of uh, reconciliation, helping people that are enjoying your benefits to realize where these benefits came from because every good and perfect gift comes from you, from the Father of Lights. And um, I just thank you for the gift of the moral law and how it brings so much richness to our life. And I pray, Lord, that um, you would save our, our society and save the people in it. For your name's sake, amen.